Hi, I would like to direct your attention to patreon.com slash duckfeedtv. You know what this is. You've heard about it from me before right here, but um, I think it's important to keep talking about it. Um, that is a way for all of you listeners to support this network and this show. So if you like what we do and you think it's worth a couple of bucks a month, that is the way that you can make a big difference for us. Once again, that is patreon.com slash duckfeedtv. Thank you. Welcome to Radio Free Midworld, a podcast about the Dark Tower series of books by Stephen King and, you know, related works. We're here today to talk about Salem's Lot, um, and I am joined by Autumn Greer. Hey, Autumn. Hey, how are you doing today, Cole? I'm doing just fine. I actually, I just finished reading this book today, and I couldn't be more excited to talk about um, this remarkable book that, like, you know, so this is Stephen King's second book, and like I'm noticing all kinds of things that were like, like, like first for him here. You know, it's it's like going back and seeing how a serial killer, you know, made those first few furtive attempts at um, <laughs> making his kills. You know, yeah. like he was working on his ritual. Yeah, on the neighborhood squirrels. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I had to be very tactical there. Neighborhood squirrels, you know, like nobody, nobody could get too sad about squirrels. Somebody's gonna get, <laughs> gonna get sad about squirrels. Um, thank you so much for hopping on. Um, you are, uh, you are very kind to kind of pick these episodes about the about the major books here. Yeah, uh, any anytime I can do more reading, you know, I'm like first to sign up for those. I'm like, oh, I have to read 700 pages to do, <laughs> you know, like a hour and a half recording. I'm yeah. gonna sign up for that one. It is it, it is appreciated, but you had you had read this before, right? You know what's funny is I had actually try. I say I, I did finish the book. I read this book when I was probably 11 or 12, and okay. I hated it. Hmm. I I think I was at an age where I was just coming off of all the Anne Rice books. Um, I think the Vampire Diaries books had come out at the same time. We, we were still way before Twilight. But right, right. I liked my vampires to be cute and broody and romantic and. <laughs> The vampire in this is extremely gross. He's yeah. not cute at all. Like, he doesn't have a cute top. He doesn't have sleepy bedroom eyes. Well, I mean, I guess he has, like, sleepy murder bedroom eyes. Right, but, um... right. You know, like, bedroom eyes in the sense that they're very dark and sunken, like chips of coal in his face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, bedroom so I, eyes. I, I, I think I even, like, gave the book away. Like, I was like, I don't want this dumb book anymore. I've got all my good Stephen King books, and I'm never going to read this again. So I, I reapproached it. Gosh, maybe six or seven years ago, and I was like, "Well, I don't have anything to do. I'm at an airport. I'm stuck. I'll just try rereading this." And I loved it. Yeah. Had you had you read uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula in the meantime between between those two? I absolutely had, and that, I think that that also is part of what made a difference because this book does such a good job of. I guess carrying that forward, you know, what, what is it? Um, Dracula hits the road. <laughs> yep. It does just the right amount of like callbacks and homage while mm. being a completely unique story. I'm yes. crazy about it. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it definitely is a, a, a different kind of story than the romantic vampire stuff you were talking about before. Yeah, nobody's cute. Yeah, well, it's it, it's it's hilarious because like you know I've I've definitely fallen for the like lol Twilight whatever you know it was a very popular thing and you have to have an opinion about a very popular thing but like. No, sexy vampires were kind of always always a thing back to Dracula, but like explicitly, you know, 
explicitly overtly sexualized vampire novels were definitely a thing before twilight i think a lot of people forgot that yeah yeah um but yeah so this is my first time reading this book uh which i feel a lot i feel a little bit like a scrub for admitting (laughs) (laughs) i don't know what's worse you having not read it or me hating it and then like completely changing my mind on it Uh, we can we, we we can split the difference on the two of them but this is you know this is a classic a classic work of you know 20th century horror uh, like we said, it is you know an, an updating of the Dracula story. King actually got the idea when he was teaching about Dracula, um, to a high school class about Dracula, and thought, "Hey, what would happen if he came back in the 20th century?" The audiobook has a really good um, prologue that is narrated by King, where he describes a little bit of some of like the philosophy behind this, which is like. You know, if a vampire or something supernatural came back in a time of roads and cars and, you know, basically modern information and sophistication and skepticism, you know, all of those parts of society, would he be more likely to be successful in his aims or less likely? And, like, part of this is, you know, part of the act of updating this is definitely King saying, like, oh, I liked that book. I want to pay homage to it. But also, like, yeah, this is it, it tells a similar tale, but with completely different circumstances, right? I'm I'm assuming that what you listened to on the audiobook and what I read in the Kindle edition were the same. I think my favorite moment in that little pre or prologue that Stephen King does um, is when he talks about how he wrote this book and his publisher said. Well, Stephen, I don't know. If you do this, you're going to be typecast as a horror writer. And Stephen <laughs> King just decided to plow through and go ahead anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I'll show you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, 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 that is very funny. I forget what they wanted to uh with what they wanted to have him have him publish instead. The only other like trivia factlet that I know is he wanted to call this book The Second Coming. Um which, in a sense, would make you know like that 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 tracks right you know like a, a new a new kind of you know birth et cetera blah blah. Um, however, his wife Tabitha said no. That's going to sound like a, like a like an erotic religious novel. <laughs> <laughs> so they decided it really does. It's it's a pretty uncouth title if you don't know exactly why it's being called that. Exactly. Yeah, and I think I think Salem's Lot is is definitely. Definitely the better way to go there, although I will constantly call the book Jerusalem's Lot, and I will constantly call the town Salem's Lot. Is that a threat? Are you threatening me? No, that's more of a warning. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I just, uh, in making the notes, it goes back and forth, so shrug. Um, But yeah, this was was King's second book. Uh, He said, screw you, I will be typecast as a horror author and become become very rich off the back of it. Thank you very much. Um, and this definitely does read like a, a book written by a young, by a young author. Um, it is interesting to see just kind of the, his early relationship with specifically like descriptions and adjectives, uh, come out to play. Like there are certain, there are certain turns of phrase in this that are a little bit kind of hinky in terms of like, well, I don't know that that adds anything. Like it's, it's funny I don't know, maybe because I'm a contrarian to go back and, like, point at things that directly contradict what he said to do in on writing. (laughs) 
I love that you can tell in these earlier books too how in love he is still with the craft of it. Yeah. I mean, he he loves in these earlier books to make little references to Shirley Jackson, like all these masters of the short story type of thing. It, mm-hmm. It's I, I think it's very very charming seeing how much he. I mean, he, he, in this book he has a main character that's a writer. I yep. mean, like, and you can tell that like. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, he has a lot to be proud of. I mean, getting published yeah. and having something like Carrie be big. I mean, it's well deserved. Mm-hmm. I think. I think everybody. Like, I'm sure there was a phase that you went through in high school, and obviously he did for short story uh, authors. I mean, God, I got so into beat stuff that it's embarrassing. Oh, like yeah. Richard Broad again and all that stuff. I mean, you know, you're like 14 or 15. Oh yeah. Everybody has like a phase that they go through, and I got stupid into like beat poets and authors and. Oh, oh, honey. Oh, teenage <laughs> uh, autumn. Like, 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 like <laughs> that is yeah, the, the, the farthest that I got was uh, was reading uh, on the road. Uh, but that, yeah. that was about it. I never got into any of the weirder stuff. But I think, feel like Stephen King was still young enough in this to still be, um, I don't know, trying some stuff out like those um, short chapters and things that we'll see later. It's, mm-hmm. This is a lot of fun. Yeah. He also tries to like mix up uh some epistolary stuff in this too. Like there's one there's one chapter that is pretty much entirely told as like um uh just like oh what if you could hear what was passing over the telephone lines. You know, a little mm-hmm. bit like uh, again taking and updating the epistolary uh kind of form of Bram Stoker's Dracula. It's it's neat. It's like it's it's neat and experimental and you can kind of see just like these nascent ideas and these nascent forms of things that King would go on to really explore, like, oh, how weird it is and how how, how much of an event it is when a new store comes into a small town, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the small town itself, you know? <laughs> uh, like, this is the first book chronologically of his that really kind of luxuriates in being about this whole town full of characters and kind of the dark secret and the kind of clannish nature that they have. Um, it is so rich with that detail that I feel like I have to put a, put a little apology at the front. There's no way we can talk about all of it in a single episode. So a lot of those details are going to be glossed over. I want to call out the ones that are really good when we get to them because there are neat little scenes, but, um, you know, that is, that, that, that is something we're just going to have to do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he is, uh, (laughs) very much kind of settling into, you know, you can see, you can see the seeds of what you're going to see, like with it later on, uh, you see, uh, kind of the introduction of the precocious young kid who through knowledge of literature is able to, through knowledge of literature and just good old fashioned American gumption is able to outwit and outpace everybody around him, you know? We, we have we have Jake 1.0. We yes. have Proto Jake. <laughs> yeah, we have. Hello, I am Proto Jake. <laughs> I just picture him like growing out of a vat. Yeah, <laughs> just just like in the Venture Brothers when the Venture Brothers when they have all the the clones and the the tanks. Yeah, all the all the all the spare Deans and Hanks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um. So we should probably answer the question: Why the hell are we talking about this on a Dark Tower podcast? Um, we're talking about it here because Salem's Lot introduces a very important character who factors into the uh, kind of the final trilogy of the series, uh, Father Donald Callahan. Oh yeah, he—that's a, that's a light way to say it—that he figures into the later trilogy. He's <laughs> he's he's foundational. It's it, so it's very funny because Stephen King, for a while, you know, after having published as Salem's Lot, said like, "Oh, I've got some ideas for a sequel. It's going to focus around Callahan." You know, just uh, I feel like I've told Ben Ben and Mark stories, 
Uh, so, you know, he, he kicked those around and just kind of promised it every once in a while. And then eventually that sequel just became a very long section of Wolves of the Kala. And his entire story just just collides headfirst with Roland's. He, he basically becomes like a last minute addition to the Cotat. Thanks, Gan. <laughs> yep. It is a wheel. So we're going to get to see him. He's a little bit of a secondary character in this, although I think he is one of the kind of the most uh, thoroughly drawn of the secondary characters. Yeah, Stephen King's able to do a lot. I mean, I think if you look at the number of pages that the Father Callahan's in uh, numerically, I mean, he can't be in more than 20 or 30 pages. Right. Gosh, I hope no one counts and checks that and proves me wrong. But If, um, if they do, it's their problem. <laughs> Autumn, he was actually on 473 pages of the book. <laughs> but um, anyway, like you said, he's just so cleanly drawn. I mean, you, you really just get a nice picture of him. I mean, you are introduced to him early, and then you don't see him for probably a third of the book, two-thirds of the book, and then he's back. And mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, yeah. like, you, like you said um, a little bit earlier before we started, it's really interesting to see the backstory of somebody that figures so prominently in book five. Yes. Yeah, I, I I came to book five originally knowing vague details about Salem's Lot, mostly related to Barlow himself, and then also like the 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 lasting image that everybody else has kind of grabbed from this, which is the child vampire floating outside the window, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I watched the um, before we got like started. I made sure that I had watched both of the trailers for both of the TV miniseries, nineteen seventy nine mm -hmm. and two thousand and four, I uh -huh. believe. And oh yeah, there's a lot of floating kids. Uh, yep, uh, he, he works in a little bit of children. The corn into this too, like the yeah. the primary vector of the initial uh, vampire infection is is kids, even even infants, which is kind of fucked up. But or yeah. an infant. God, poor Randy. Oh, Randy. Pour one out no, for Randy. No, nothing nothing good happens to Randy in this book. Randy never stood a chance. Um, <sighs> yeah. Uh, so the other thing that makes this relate to the uh, the back half of the Dark Tower series is the fact that King's Vampires, introduced here but then uh, thoroughly classified later on in the Tower books, like th they become kind of part of the rank and file of the Kings of the Kings. But of the Crimson King's forces, right? Yeah, you know the Crimson King wouldn't have the cute, sexy vampires. You know yeah. he'd have the gross ones. Well, he, I mean, he, he just for contrast, he he needs to boost. <laughs> he needs to boost his self esteem. You know? Yeah. Yeah, he's got to bring in the crazy, like razor mouth vampires for this. <laughs> um, that's that, that's a good strategy. Like I should embrace that for rolling up to the bar. I'll just get my grossest, <laughs> most vampirey friends, like yep. not, the not cute vampire kind. You know, yeah. like just kind of greasy looking, sallow, and just roll up to the club. <laughs> You, you you want to roll up with some Nosferatu, not some not yeah. no, no, no tremors, you know? Yeah, exactly. Like like Peter from What We Do in the Shadows, definitely, God. definitely that. I I I owe What We Do in the Shadows a rewatch. It has been too long since I have seen What We Do in the Shadows. <sighs> what a perfect film! It is so good. Oh man, Jermaine, Jermaine. Um, anyway, uh, there are two short stories that are kind of like, uh, related to what happens in this. There's a story called, uh, Jerusalem's Lot. That's kind of Lovecraftian story set in 1850, uh, but like it is set around this. Uh, and then there's also One for the Road, which kind of shows that the ending of this book, uh, didn't really work out. <laughs> it shows a, a family that got stuck in, in, in Jerusalem's Lot after the vampire, the vampire plague took it. Both of those are in Night Shift, which came out shortly after this book. 
this book came mm-hmm. out. Have you read either of those? Um, I have not actually. Um, this is, uh, I was kind of hoping this would come up. I I finished the book, and I, I, as I mentioned, I read it on the Kindle app. Uh, I noticed that as I was getting closer to the final page, because the pages are numbered, I think 452, it still showed that I had about 20% of the book left. So I was Weird. like, well, maybe it's just dead space or something. There seems to be another like 50, 60 pages of content um, at the end. I noticed it's not on the notes that we'll be covering today. And I did not remember it from the earlier ones that I had written. So I, I believe that they've gone back and put some expanded content in the Kindle one, which I'm looking forward to reading. Very strange. So I imagine they probably put those two stories in at the end of it. There's there, there's another edition of the book that came out in the mid 2000s that is like an expanded um, an expanded illustrated version where they kind of did a little bit of a um, the stand extended edition where they put in like deleted scenes or expanded scenes or stuff. And I believe that that's what is at the end of the Kindle in addition for anyone that's looking looking to make a purchase. Okay, cool. I do not have those included, mostly because I made my notes off of the audiobook version. <laughs> I did not read them yet because, as I mentioned, I finished the book a little bit earlier today. Uh-huh. And I, um, I was like, please don't let Cole have notes on this additional no, 60 no. or 70 pages. Yeah, We're that's, recording in 35 minutes. <laughs> that's too much. No, I would not. <laughs> that's too much uh, apparently that like that expanded edition was was incredibly expensive when it came out too so i don't know how many people how many people outside of the kindle ecosystem have actually gotten a chance to read that wow yeah uh but let's jump into it let's uh let, 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 let's get started with this prologue which is sufficiently mysterious we have this man and this boy who are uh running from their past in a town called jerusalem's lot this town that we are now led to believe is completely dead um, if they're if they're not comparing it to the lost colony of Roanoke, then it's definitely implied. Um, and they land in Mexico, where the boy enters the Catholic Church, and the man is kind of watching the newspapers for any kind of activity that might relate to what they were running for, running from. It it's a really idyllic sort of thing. They're in. Um... They're in Los Zapatos, right? Mm-hmm. Which he gets a kick out of meaning the shoes yep. uh, in Spanish. But there, there's some beautiful lines. I mean, they're they're out in rural Mexico. Uh, their day to day life seems great. He's he's teaching the boy on his own. He's learning. There's a line in there. They they drew their water from the well by hand. I mean, mm-hmm. it sounds very romantic, except you can just there's this palpable dread. Yes. Something's not right. Yeah, um, it's 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 no good because you get the sense that disaster is kind of nipping nipping right at their heels and like neither of them sleeps well either like they are constantly having these nightmares about about what has happened back there mm-hmm. uh, i don't think uh, either of these characters are named at this point is just the man and the boy uh yes. we are also we are also um led to believe that the man and boy are not father and son so something is happening uh and we're gonna go find out with part one of the novel the marston house um a good part of this first third of the book is really dedicated to the history of the town, um, you know, uh, before our main character arrives and his lovingly describe describes Citroen. It, <laughs> it, is, it, it is never just his car. It is always his Citroen. Something that's a little bit funny since we were talking about other vampires earlier, I was looking it up so I could figure out how to pronounce Citroen and I... I believe I have not actually seen the television series Buffy the Vampire Slayer, 
But apparently one of the characters in there, Giles, drives a Citroen, which I just thought it was interesting that such an obscure car would show up in two vampire-related properties. Oh, that has to be intentional. I, it, I imagine it would be. And maybe that's like the first thing like in every single like listicle about 10 things you should know about <laughs> Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Like Maybe that's the most 101 obvious thing, but I was kind of surprised at that when I looked it up. Yeah. So, do you want to know, do you, do you want a horrifying confession? I've never seen Buffy the Vampire Slayer either. So. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Ooh, we're, we're getting real tonight. Cole. Yeah. I just said I just said never. I didn't watch it when I was on, and like it kind of seemed like one of those shows where. If you're not part of the zeitgeist. Yeah. You can't yeah. really go back. Like it's available, but then there are people who say like, "Oh, skip season one, but watch these particular episodes from season one to get this or read this it, guy." It, like. like it's not like somebody's like, man, I just heard about this show called Lost, and I'm 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 really about to get into it, you know, <laughs> right. in, in 2018. No, no, uh, definitely, definitely not the case. We did a we did an Abject Suffering uh, episode about the Lost, the, the the video game they made of Lost, like the spinoff kind of thing, and oh, people wow. were still saying like, oh my gosh, you should totally go watch Lost. I'm like, ah, nah, I'm good. <laughs> Did you have anybody write in and uh, complain about spoilers? Hey, hey, guys, guys. <laughs> no, 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 no. We don't know anything to spoil is the thing. <laughs> so. um, but yeah, let's talk a little bit about the history of this town. There are only a couple of incidents that factor in very heavily. Uh, we should talk about the name. It is named after uh, a, a notable local pig. <laughs> <laughs> a, a, a pig named Jerusalem, who is a real character, was knocking people over. And people said, oh, that's Jerusalem's lot. Um, and so there you go. Uh, it's a town in rural Maine, as uh, as as King is wont to do. I would be remiss if I did not mention that in the census of 1970, Salem's Lot had uh, 1,319 inhabitants. Oh, there we go. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's also there, there's one line that I read, and I was like, Autumn's going to highlight that, where one of the characters' moms goes into a hospital with a gun. And draws it like some dusty, ageless gunslinger. Ooh. Yeah. 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 You were correct. I highlighted it. <laughs> nice. Um, but yeah, it's a tiny town. Um, the most notable feature of which uh, is kind of this massive mansion that sits on a, that sits on a, a like an overlook on a mountain almost, kind of uh, uh, presiding over the town like a dark idol, eventually the main character calls it. This is the Marston House that was uh, owned by a mafia hitman named Hubie Marston and his wife. All kinds of rumors and stuff, uh, uh, you know, abound about this particular house up to and including and even through to today, especially because Hubie Marston hung himself in the attic. Uh, also, I love this, that the house is <laughs> like the house is a booby trapped hoarder nest before we even knew what to call hoarders. Mm -hmm. I just I I know that Stephen King when he was describing or writing this you know writing the descriptions of what they found when they went to get Hubie, he was like oh remember that apartment in New York in like the early early twentieth century with those two twin brothers who hoarded newspapers like one of them died uh, under a deadfall that he rigged up to oh, keep yeah. people away yeah that is definitely what Stephen King was reading when he wrote that yeah this is a, just a very expansive um, murder apartment yes. <laughs> but even crazier mrs marston was seen at uh hubie's graveside making these sick incantations about the lord of flies um around this there's no sense beating around no sense avoiding spoilers because we're going to talk about all this stuff anyway 
um, Hubie Marston had been in contact with the evil that was going to uh, uh, roost here. He had never actually met Barlow, but him and his wife ended up kind of preparing the house and doing all of these kind of sick rituals and sacrifices and things like that in order to basically prepare and desecrate the ground so Barlow could live here. That's the one thing that it's for this book. It's a little tough for me to be a mature reader about because I want more Marston lore. Yep. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it's just enough. It's just enough to give you a feeling that it's eerie. It's wrong. It's dark. I mean, it just titillates you with a little bit of knowledge, but I want detail for detail the day that they built the house. Like <laughs> I want a whole prequel book. Yeah, I, I forget like what the one line was, but it was like, you know, okay, well, how many people did he kill for the mob? And it's like, okay, well, how high can you count? Like, I want to, I want, I want to read about his his travails and how they got yeah. messed up in the dark arts. Yeah, when you're affiliated with the mob and <laughs> with the 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 Lord of Lies, I really want to know a little bit more about you from a distance, yeah. a comfortable distance. Right. But I, I gotta know more. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I need more than the two books that ever got written about the subject in, you know, in, in the fiction here uh, <laughs> and all of the uh, kind of half muttered rumors that outsiders don't get to hear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, also, shortly after Marston's death, I believe in like 1941, I believe, um, a wildfire took out half of the town. The reason the dates get a little bit soupy, soupy for me is I forget that this book came out in 1975 which although it is pretty modern also messes up like what wars happened recently <laughs> so like 1939 feels like it is implausibly in the past mm -hmm. more so that like a character alive in 1975 couldn't have been around to to to, to see this place when it happened right it's like it's like that time dilation where Martin Luther King Jr and Anne Frank were born in the same year right oh, oh geez Huh. But you just remember them completely differently. I saw that floating around Twitter the other day, and I just sat there and just stared at my phone for a while. And I was like, <laughs> no, that doesn't. No, no uh. that's not. I, I need to <laughs> I need to double check that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Huh. I, I, I never knew that fact either. Huh. Anyway. <laughs> but yes, this wildfire took out half of the town. Um, you know, we have these disasters. This, you know, it's a small town with a with a big outsized dark past. Uh, and Ben Mears factors into that somewhat. Uh, factors more into his dark future, but we'll get there. Uh, enter Ben Mears, the Stephen King author character, the surrogate, the main the, the main guy. Um, he hasn't gotten to the point where his writer characters are also the most troubled. Like Ben Mears is just a real, you know, uh, upright kind of guy. The only problem that he has is that his wife, uh, or was it his girlfriend? I forget, Miranda. Whoever she was to him died in a, mo in a mm -hmm. motorcycle accident while he was driving. But he's like a moderately successful writer who has an embattled relationship with the critics. And he rides into town. He had been here as a child, but left shortly after he had a traumatic experience with the Marston house. He had gone in there on a dare, like an initiation thing, and saw a vision, like an apparition of, uh, of Hubie Marston hanging in the attic. What do you think of Ben? I want to be mad that he's or disappointed that he's a Gary Stew, mm -hmm. but I really like him. Yeah, I, I I like the little snippets that you get about. I mean, it it 
I don't mind seeing what a Stephen King when this book was written would have been like. As you mentioned, I like that he's having a little trouble with the critics, that maybe his first book was successful and his second books are a little bit not as much. I I love, as we'll see later, that he's such a dedicated writer, just like Stephen King. He gets up every day and he writes his work. You you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, he's... He's obviously got quite the the work ethic, um, yeah. but yeah, Ben's just a he's just a, a a good guy. Yeah, and that comes across like he has very few like pretensions about his dealings with other people. Like he is more than game to like to to to, to get back into the into small town life and like gets along with the other boarders at the house where he goes to live to to live at and kind of just becomes somebody who is both trusting and trustworthy. So you run mm-hmm. into a little bit of a problem of like, oh, he is both honorable and good. Like those are the, those are a bit of his uh, of his character traits. But mm-hmm. like, um, you know, you're kind of happy to see him get through it. Even though I think uh, in that in the intro, uh, King said like he didn't plan for Ben to live, but Ben was just more tenacious than he expected him to be. Oh, that's a beautiful turn of phrase. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he's come back to uh, to Salem's Lot to write. What would probably be an intolerable book about the nature of evil? <laughs> uh, just kind of his idea, you know, about the Marston House and, uh, you know, and about, you know, the, the, the sprees of crimes that have happened in the area. Um, uh, but more as just kind of a way to conquer his childhood demons by being back in the town. He even plans to, he even plans to rent the Marston House and go live there. But he, he says, I'm never going to go in the attic. There's um there's some some dark irony there that he's coming to get inspired about a book and to to write his nightmares away and you know probably what he thinks he's gonna write is some vague haunted house uh, thing and instead oh man does he get a horror story going <laughs> yep like, yeah, a bit, bit off a little bit more than he could chew yeah that yeah. I think that there's a thread of that that runs throughout the book of the irony of people getting exactly what they want yeah. <laughs> Oh man, uh, especially uh, oh, poor Susan's mom. Right? Yeah, yeah, um, but we'll get there. <laughs> we <laughs> so, got nothing but time. Yeah, um, no. So Ben wants to rent the Marston house, but finds out that it's been purchased by this mysterious furniture dealer who has also moved to town. So he takes up residence in this boarding house, which honestly sounds pretty nice. <laughs> like it, it, it does. It's charming. Yeah. Uh, lots of local characters living there going in and out it's a real it's a regular uh it's a regular hey arnold situation <laughs> um but yes he's not in town very long before he finds uh and he finds somebody and he hits it off uh with you know uh susan norton very strange that her name is also susan but what hey. is it about girls named susan that apparently as soon as you meet one the wheels of fate start turning and, and, and you're in love in like a week you're in love less. in a week and then she is uh dead in a month or less <laughs> the, 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 the wheels of fate start turning and it grinds her to a paste yes exactly man we got a we got a susan in the frame uh-oh yeah that's uh it's it's like uh the red shirts in star trek Oh no, she named Susan. She's definitely going down. And I mean, what what bigger turn on could there be for a writer like Ben that she's read your book and it, I mean, is is she holding it? No, she's like, re- she- she's reading it at the time. Like he's yeah, walking yeah, like- through the park and she recognizes him. This is the point. So like Susan's Susan's fine. Like she she serves her purpose in a way that I'm 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 sure could be regressive in some in, in, in some readings, like, oh, she she exists to die, so the main character has a motivation. Um, 
she's fine even on even in addition to that like she helps out and contributes to the you know to to, to the cause of the of the hunt you know all those kinds of things but like this is definitely wish fulfillment that the author rolls into his small town from his childhood somebody is just happening to read his books and immediately wants to like hop in his arms yeah that was a freebie <laughs> yeah oh man yeah i i've been saying that was a freebie a lot recently because i just uh been re-watching arrested development yeah yeah you know? oh well but yeah they hit it off um and she breaks things off with floyd tibbetts who sounds like a real ninny <laughs> Poor yeah, uh, yeah Flo- floyd's not a we, we don't see a ton of floyd but what we do see and hear about him is is not that great he sounds really bo- like a just a boring jock yeah, boring jock hangs out at the at the at the watering hole. Um, <laughs> you know, sincerely, uh, all you need to know about him is that Susan's mom wants wants her to be with him, right? Yeah. So Ooh. Susan's mom. I mean, Susan and her mom are a bit of a prototype for Fran and her mother in the stand. Yeah. Um, but Stephen King has a gift for these difficult relationships with daughters and mothers. And it m- makes me wonder what his wife's relationship with her mother is, oh. or uh, actually, cause you, again, when you see a lot of these little things keep cropping up in Stephen King's stuff, I wish I knew more about his own backstory, how Stephen King came up, who a lot of these characters are pulled from. Yeah. It'd be, it'd be good to know, especially for the ones that do end up becoming tropes like this. Mm-hmm. Right. These uh the, the, these kind of repeating elements. It's not a good relationship, regardless. Yeah. Um, uh, on the other hand, uh, Ben does get along very well with Susan's dad. <laughs> yeah, Susan's dad seems like a good guy. <laughs> yeah, and I'm kind of sad that he just disappears from the book. <sighs> yeah. Well, at least we don't. At least we don't have to see him drinking anybody. This is true, although he <laughs> definitely doesn't get out of this alive. <laughs> because only two people do. Only guess three. Two and a half. <laughs> Two and a half people get out of this alive. There's there's this one line in here when he's first meeting Susan or maybe when they're having ice cream together or whatever, but he talks about how in his head he's Ben is making up a Playboy article about himself. Uh-huh. And that just tickled me to death. Like just because you know there's always that like phrase that everyone says about I oh I subscribe to Playboy for the articles. Like, oh I imagine Playboy for the articles just tickles me to death. <laughs> yep. Well he's a writer, so he definitely yeah. has this uh the, this opinion of Playboy that is entirely like, Oh, I either want to be featured in this or I want them to buy stories from me. Yeah, but instead of <laughs> fantasizing about the tasteful nudes within, he's literally <laughs> fantasizing about the articles. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> that 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 is that is very funny. <laughs> one of my one of my favorite details. This is a little bit later in the story when uh you know because because Ben's the new the newcomer, he's the outsider in the small town. Everybody gets all the details about his past. They learn about his 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 girlfriend slash wife who died in the in the motorcycle accident. Uh, Susan's mom is like, oh, he, he was he was drunk when this happened, and it's like, no, he wasn't. And you know, just because because she'd heard the story, and, and and the mom says, "Well, they gave him the breathalyzer. You know, they don't give you the breathalyzer unless you're drunk, honey." <laughs> <laughs> so that's exactly what we're working with. <laughs> uh, Her math checks out. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of math, I, I just have to get it out of the way. There's this one part in in this section um, somewhere in the first like thirty or forty pages where they do mention. That Jerusalem's lot was also incorporated in 1765, which those digits add up to 19. Huh. Yeah, you're right. Huh. 
Yeah, I can't I, believe you did that math so fast. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, it's not. It's, not, it's not like I needed to, to double check you, but you said it, and then I just I was I immediately did the calculator. Like, oh yeah, huh? <laughs> I did it on my phone just to make sure because I'm like, ooh, that would be embarrassing. <laughs> no, that's uh, man, it is so hard to know what is what is intentional because he laces it so hard throughout the back half of the series. <laughs> Uh, that would be that would that would be the craziest long game to ever play, probably. <laughs> um, anyway, so the Marston House, like we said, it, Ben cannot rent it because a year ago, the strange bald man named Richard Straker. I cannot help but imagine Straker as Agent Forty Seven from Hitman. <laughs> uh, for you know, I, I know that he is meant to be a little bit more, a little bit more tasteful than that video game character, but he's definitely off-putting. Uh, I love the description. He like he he speaks with no accent. You know, so, so, so Stra Straker is good, and you you definitely get the get the idea that Straker is a uh, is the is the main bad guy more than anything. Did, good. Did you catch that when he was introducing himself that he said that um, my name is Straker Richard Throckett Straker? Throckett is what you call a group of billy bumblers. Throckett. Throckett. T T H R O C K E T T. A throcket of billy bumblers, and oh. Straker's middle name is Throckett. Huh. I thought it was Throcken. Oh, uh, is it? With, 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 with an E M. I don't know. Oh. Do, 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 do a search on that to make sure that I'm... Oh, I'm, I'm searching it right now. To, 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 oh, to no, make sure no, that it, is, it is Throckin. No, you're, okay. you're completely right. False alarm, but I appreciate the vigilance. No, no, they, this is saying Throckit, um later on. Huh. Uh, um, the weirdest words in... There's a Vulture article that is saying that it's Throckit. Okay. Um, hmm. I will keep an eye out for that. That would yeah. be... Uh, he, 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 he must really just enjoy that... Uh, that, that 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 combination of syllables and just yeah, decided I think, to carry um, forward. Tim, Tim Ross met a throcket of bumblers in the forest beyond Faginard. Um, yeah. Maybe it's the case. So maybe it's the case that um, throcken is singular and throcket is um, uh. a, a whole bunch of them. I, I I forget and I don't know I don't know what to what to search for enough to to do that search gracefully on the air. Yeah, if so. the the Billy Bumblers come a knocking, they're probably in a throcking, right? <laughs> yep, throcket and tubs. Um, no, but there's this notable scene. Like, there's a local real estate developer. Uh, you know, who's, who's a little, little bit crooked. Uh, Straker comes and makes this deal, saying, "Hey, we're going to take the we'll take the Marston House and the storefront on the uh, on the main drag there." I'll give you one dollar plus this patch of land where I know they're they're going to build a mini mall in town. Um, uh, and also, hey, I need I need you to move some stuff around, including possibly my boss. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. This uh, this this real estate guy go sends some dudes down to a dock to get uh, you know, to to get like crates of furniture and stuff. One of them is not uh, has not been touched by customs. And that is that is definitely Barlow's uh, Bar Barlow's casket shipped with some soil from his native land, which is just Dracula as hell. Yep. <laughs> so it is it is very cool their bewilderment. But yeah, uh, Straker is out just giving people the willies all over town, acting as an agent for Kurt Barlow, 
uh, who is never seen. We only get one glimpse of Barlow in this entire part of the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so Ben goes out drinking with another tenant at the, uh, at the house there, Weasel, uh, who's an alcoholic. Probably not cool to go drinking with an alcoholic, but mm, it was a different time. Uh, and there they meet uh, Matt Burke, who is the local uh, local English teacher. He's beloved. Ben and Matt hit it off. Ben says, "Hey, you you strike me as a Van Helsing figure." <laughs> no, they, they 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 say that later. They 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 call out the resemblance to Van Helsing later. I love Matt. Matt's so cool. <laughs> Matt's so good. He's like a, he's like a proto Glenn Bateman. He's like that teacher that everybody wishes that they had in school. You mm-hmm. know, just yeah. just cool old Mister Matt. Yeah, it's like, you know, why can't I have Mister? Why can't I have Mister Burke in you know, in junior year too? He was so good in sophomore year. <laughs> He's wasted on those young those young pieces of shit. <laughs> um, but yeah, they they, they they hit it off, and Matt becomes a major character in this. We're also introduced to uh, to Mark Petri, uh, proto Jake being <laughs> being grown in his tube. <laughs> Um, he's this uh, bookish young boy who kind of establishes his character by beating up a bully twice his size. Good old Richie. Um, and Mark is just supernaturally good and on top of it. He uses his uh, his agility to beat uh, uh, to, to beat Richie instead of his strength, knowing that all bullies are just big, stinky butt faces. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe Mark is the the Gary Stew. I mean, he's he's a he's a good smart boy who definitely the the bully deserves it, and he relies on his wits and his limited it's... skill. I mean, he's who wouldn't want to be little Mark? I mean, it's a bit of a triad, right? Because you have Ben, who's the who is the successful writer, uh, you know, early on in his career, like King was at the time. You have you have Mark, who is the bookish young kid who solves his problems with brains, not brawn, like King probably imagined himself to be as a big fan of, as a big fan of, of all kinds of pulp stories and stuff. And then you have the old high school teacher and Matt, who is, you know, beloved by everybody in the community, just like King was a high school teacher, a high school teacher at the time. And he probably wanted to be like Matt if he continued down that road. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they form a, a good boy triad. <laughs> yep. A good boy triad that can do no wrong. <laughs> oh. Uh, so those are all the pieces that need to be on the board for right now. Uh, let's talk about kind of the rising action of this, which starts with a terrible uh, thing that happens to two local children, Ralphie and Danny Glick. I want to give you uh want to give you room to uh to describe their fate. And uh, reflect on it. Well, they um, they're on their way over to go hang out with cool kid Mark, the new guy in town who has all of these monster figurines, Draculas, Frankenstein's, Wolfmen, um, and they know that their parents or their mother in particular would not like for them to go over and look. Uh, they're going through the woods. They start to hear some noises. Ralphie and Danny get separated. And Danny's just gone. Ralphie mm-hmm. stumbled. Oh no, yeah. Ralphie stumbles back home. He's in shock. Uh, nobody can figure out, you know, you know what what's going on. He mentions, I believe, seeing a dark shape. Mm-hmm. Uh, but otherwise, uh, he's he's just missing. So the the townspeople get out and about, and they're they're beating the bushes, including our our hero Ben, uh, who is out there searching for him as as well. It's 
it's always scary when something happens to uh, a, a child. I think that was a clever way for him to Stephen King to do this mm-hmm. because it just it's like a slap in the face that a kid goes missing right away. Yeah, especially especially in a small town like this, like it definitely mm-hmm. it, it makes a lot of it makes a lot of sense to like gather everybody around this. You know, yeah, you you'd think that you'd go look at like somebody you, you know like a quiet lady that keeps to herself that's on Meals on Wheels or something mm-hmm. like that, but like nope the 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 boys are in town um mm-hmm. <laughs> mr straker's in town and we're just going to write for a kid yeah we're going I mean, we're going right for a kid like we need to we need to uh, grab nab ralphie glick because you know like the one final sacrifice needs to be made you know to to to, to desecrate the ground right um <sighs> what happens with ralphie and danny is uh it starts something that i actually really like about this book it's not like it it's not like it lacks gore, right? You know, there mm-hmm. are definitely times later on where they describe, you know, massive geysers of blood rising, like rushing out of people's mouths and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but like for for a lot of these attacks that happen, you know, the bites or the initial takings, it is described almost from the point of view of the person who is being entranced, mm-hmm. who is being offered, who is being offered the thing they most want, so they will submit to the bite, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, you never actually get a lot of detail about the way that they meet their end. What you instead get is a glimpse at what they want most. Mm-hmm. It's good. Like, like it, it, it is a good, it is a good and tasteful choice in a novel that by all rights had every incentive to be as, tra- as trashy as possible. Mm-hmm. I, I did want to mention at some point too, I think it, if it was right before this or right afterwards, but there was also a black and white dog that had been hung up on a fence. Yeah. Um, I, 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 which, I, I go ahead. It's, it's, it's another accident of birth that we see just like the little sisters of Aluria. Cause this dog happened to be black and white and was born with two white spots over its eyes, which I guess in terms of vampire lore um, is something that's really repellent to, to vampires. But yeah, poor, poor little dog wasn't born with a cross on his chest. Like he needed to be. Nope. No. Well, it wouldn't have, uh, it, it wouldn't have done any good because Straker uh, is not, uh, is, is, is not one of the children of the night. Right. Yeah. That's so, true. Yeah. So, so all Straker had to do has something like, so like, like to, to, to ward off a vampire, you would take a black dog and put like angel, angel feathers or scales over his eyes, like with paint or whatever. Mm-hmm. And this dog just kind of naturally had them. So I read that and I was like, oh, my gosh, I wish I knew that when we were talking about the Little Sisters of Illyria, because mm-hmm. that definitely makes a lot makes a little bit more sense with uh, with that doggo. Right. Yeah. So this, this doggo just had to be baffled. Like, what? what? <laughs> Wait a minute. Why did I get the raw end of the deal? Come on. Striker's a pretty good assistant, though. I mean, he's like, ooh, I know that Barlow would not like that. Let me yeah. just go ahead and take care of that. Yeah, let's just let, let, let's just nip this one in the bud. I mean, he's a pretty good assistant. Like like later on when they when they go searching for all of the like stereotypical anti-vampire supplies and all of them have been bought out. Yeah. <laughs> because Barlow had sent Straker to basically put in orders on all the roses and stuff. <laughs> Um, 
<laughs> yes, yeah, so Straker's on top. That's actually my my favorite thing later, and I, I know we'll get to the, that later. But the the idea that like all these wild roses that they were going to deck themselves in them, it just reminds me of going to hunt vampires. It like you're dressed to go to Coachella, like flower crowns, high waisted <laughs> jean shorts, gladiator sandals. You know, like you would just have the same outfit on because vampires yeah. don't like roses. Like you like you were going to see Lana Del Rey, you would just wear that exact outfit. Yeah, for, and, for hunting vampires. And, you know, and when what happens what 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 happens if uh, vampires descend on Coachella well first off you have my new Amazon original single uh, and second <laughs> off guess what all those people with the roses they're holding yeah. all the cards yeah they're safe yeah <laughs> they can get out of there sorry Lana <laughs> yeah Lana Del Rey vampire hunter <laughs> <laughs> yeah so but the aftermath of this is pretty sad they uh they're not, they're not able to find Ralphie uh, Danny falls ill. You know, he, he doesn't, he's not a waiter in the daytime. Um, he says, mom, dad, I'm a vampire. Please help me. Nobody really knows what to do, what to do with them. Um, he, he dies of what the doctors can only describe as pernicious anemia. And of mm-hmm. course the, 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 the details about what happens with him at the morgue end up slipping out and eventually his body goes missing. Uh, what do you think of this horrifying scene at Danny's funeral where his dad is just in shock and leaps on the coffin? Uh, it's one of the most impactful things that you can see in film or, or read in books. I, um, I, I've actually had this conversation with Jeremy that I, I'm, I'd like to put in my living will that he goes ahead and gets into the grave. And I promised him I'll do vice versa just because I mean, it's, it's respectful, right. you know? Yeah, <laughs> just, just, just like getting messy at the funeral. Like, how else would you know someone was loved? Right. No, you just you just, you, you got to go above and beyond. But you 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 do feel so badly for these parents. I mean, the parents are effectively like ghosts at this point. They've lost the boy. It, it, it's kind of creating a situation where, I, I mean, the, the the whole family's adrift. And it, Mark Petrie had such a close tie to them. I guess even though he was new in town, I mean, he. It, it really clues Mark into something not being quite right. Right. Yeah. It's uh it's raw. Uh, like the, the, that was, that was hard. Uh, like eventually mm-hmm. I'm like, it, it can't happen. He's only 12 fucking years old. Like, mm-hmm. God, geez. Um, yeah. So <laughs> anyway, there is a, the, there's a similarly upsetting scene where a character who I thought was going to be a little bit more major. And I guess he's major in the plot, but like major in terms of the, uh, the quartet, Mike Ryerson, uh, kind of this mm-hmm. regular good old boy gravedigger, he's setting about bur- burying Danny. You know, he's reflecting on how, how just how how senseless it is that they drape the plastic grass over the over over the dirt at the at the funeral like that. You know, he's reflecting on that, but then he gets this creeping feeling that ultimately turns into this psychosis that Danny is his eyes are open in the in the casket and he's staring up. And like, I need to open the, I need to open the casket. I need to close his eyes. I need to let him out. Like, and he, you know, is in the process of burying it, you know, dumps, jumps in and starts like unburying it with his hands. And eventually, I mean, like, this is, this is how Danny gets let out. This is like, this is how Danny avoids being buried. And there, there is nothing more. I mean, it's a, it's a. I don't know if it's quite a trope, but I mean, this is something that we see. I mean, the child vampire is, I think, one of the most effective uses of horror in any vampire thing. It's just so somehow inappropriate. Let the right one in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, no, and like they, 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 King is definitely not ashamed to use it. Just the fact mm-hmm. that it, 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 it begins that way, and basically throughout the entire, I don't think Danny is ever taken down. I, I, I think that Danny is is just left to his own devices throughout the rest of this to go out infecting people. So, yeah. little 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 lost boy just floating around. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So. While this is happening, or around the time that this happens, Mark Petrie is going out exploring, and he finds he finds his way into the basement of the Marston house and discovers, oh, mutilated remains and clothing that uh, definitely belong to Ralphie. Again, putting all these pieces together that something is wrong up there. Um, and Mark is, you know, practical enough to know that nobody would believe him if he said it. He's just going to hold this one under his under his cap for now. Mm-hmm. But yeah. This uh the, the this part of the book comes to a head. Uh, Mike Ryerson uh, is incredibly sick. Matt has gone uh to gone to the watering hole, you know, just for his for, for his nightly drink, and uh, sees Matt. Uh, he initially thinks that Matt's on drugs, like that. Uh, that uh, sorry, that Mike was on drugs. Um, you know, Mike was a former um student of Matt's, and Matt. I think definitely has a very reasonable, a reasonable hang up about being a teacher is like, oh, you get to see the horrible ends that your students come to sometimes. So he's incredibly worried about him when he finds out like, hey, I'm sick. I can't. I just I just I don't trust myself to be alone. I can't take care of myself. Um, Matt invites him in. And it is during this day that uh, that a floating Danny Glick rises outside of Mike's window and finishes the job. Mm hmm. It's interesting that the stages of infection that everyone goes through. I mean, it does seem like a lot of these people have just the the worst hangover at first. You know, yeah. they're a little bit lice sensitive, foods repellent, they're thirsty. I mean, that that hangover thing. It, it, it's interesting that it's a feeding process, like mm-hmm. that it's a slow creeping feeding, and not just hey, one and done, you're all converted, you're vampires yeah. now. Yeah, <laughs> I've I've never conceived of hangovers as a slow rejection of all that is human and holy, but I can totally uh, I, I, <laughs> I can I can totally uh, uh, get down with that. <sighs> yeah, no, it, it, it's it sucks, especially as it starts spreading, like, again, not to draw connections to like just like anything and everything, but like the way that this spreads and eventually the way that that, that Salem's lot becomes written off as a total loss. I'm kind of like, oh, yeah, this is like. This feels a little bit like a practice round for the stand, almost mm-hmm. like this town. This town is done for. And nobody knows it yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, um, I just got I just got it to it in my notes. Um, one bumbler is a thraken. Um, a group of bumblers is a thraket. You're oh, totally correct. Okay, cool. No, you were correct. I I revised myself. Um, yeah, God, we're my, we're both correct. Yeah. We're so good at this. We should start a podcast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe people would listen. Yeah. <laughs> No, <laughs> so, um, yeah, and this section ends uh, with, uh, you know, Mike being in, in dire straits, by which I mean dead and infected, uh, but we get uh, um, Barlow, his first appearance here, as he goes out to meet the very poorly named Dud. That's right, Salem's Lot got the Dud. <laughs> Yeah, I feel bad for Dud. Like he's he's a hunchback. He didn't get dealt a lot of uh, good cards. He's definitely from circumstances. 
Whoa, um, whoa, 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 whoa. I feel bad for human dud. Vampire dud is living the dream. Okay, this is true. Vampire dud gets to be the Lord of Rats. <laughs> he, Lord of Rats, he gets the girl. He gets yeah. vampire Ruthie, finally. He doesn't uh-huh. just have to keep looking at her all creepy. Yeah. I mean, every, everything's coming up vampire dud. Yeah, and all he has to do is make this little deal with uh, with Barlow to stop burning all the burning and shooting all the rats. Yeah, just one very small thing. Just one very, very tiny, just stop doing your job and you'll get everything you ever wanted. <laughs> well, that sounds amazing. Can I do that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Everything's everything's coming up. Evil done. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you're right. Fuck the, fuck, fuck the done. <laughs> so. Um, but yeah. So one thing that's cool, and it's not described, it's not explicitly called out until later on, but like initially Barlow is described as this, you know, incredibly aged man as, you know, has, has like a wispy you know, like old man, European mustache, hair is swept back or whatever. But like, as the novel goes on and he starts making more and more appearances, his description becomes just a little bit more healthy, a little bit more, a little bit younger, a little bit more put together that like, as, as all of this goes on, he is able to feed in the chaos and basically revitalize himself by being in his element. Nothing's ever going to top that um, Gary Oldman uh, bouffant that he had uh, at the beginning of it. But Never. I have to imagine it's the same type of progression that we're going through here. I, I'm pretending the, that Barlow has the, the bouffant. <laughs> I love that. That movie is so goofy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, this takes us to part two, The Emperor of Ice Cream, um, which is explicitly a reference to a uh, Wordsworth poem, I think. It's it's presented in its full text at the beginning as a part of the uh, not epigraph, but you know what I mean. It, it's not a poem that I was familiar with before this book at all. Like a lot of sometimes the things for Stephen King, it's something that you did read in a high school literature class or that you just encountered. But um, this was completely new to me. The Emperor of Ice Cream. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at this. I want to make sure that I have it correct. No, it was Wallace Stevens is the. Uh, is is the guy um it on its face that is a really goofy name for something like haha ice cream man lol uh but no like it is a poem about funeral preparations mm-hmm. um it's a good poem i, I like it it's it, it, it is apt and that is something that uh whether it's pop lyrics or uh little snippets of stories or poems king is very good at picking these initial little uh kind of scene setter quotes mm-hmm. for parts of his books and things um what I love about this whole section of the book is just how ride or die Matt and Ben are. Oh yeah. <laughs> they're, they're just like, like Will Smith and Martin Lawrence and bad boys, you yeah. know, <laughs> they're, they're, they're just in for it. Like, yeah. you know, their, 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 their friendship is, you know, it, it, it is young. It is a young friendship that they have embarked upon. However, uh, Ben finds Matt totally credible. So when Ben gets a call from Matt saying like, hey, can you come on over and maybe bring a cross? <laughs> um, that uh, Ben not only gets up and leaves the house, but goes and immediately is like, yeah, well, let's let's let, let's take care of this. It's not I, that, go ahead. I really appreciated Susan being so much more incredulous about this later because it does seem a little bit like Ben's like, oh, OK, yeah, sure. Yeah. Oh, vampires are real. It is what it is. 
<laughs> yep. Well, I guess that's I guess that's what it is. Like, there's a whole um. I, I love the whole back and forth with Ben and Susan. Uh, like, it's not really reflected in the notes because it ultimately doesn't have a lot to do with the main plot. It is more characterization. But like, Ben tries to persuade Susan by saying, "Okay, take the word can't out of out, out of your vocabulary." You know, mm-hmm. if, if if the only if the only evidence that you have or the only argument that you have against you know this explanation for what's going on is oh that can't happen then that's not that that's not exactly you know that's not exactly firm ground to stand on right yeah yeah absolutely yeah um into it (laughs) (laughs) into it and just into just the like the like the whole description just like the, the the process that mike's that Mike's body go th- goes through, you know, when they call the police and call in the medical examiners and stuff. Like, just the fact that so much of this is on rails. Like, they, they say, like, you know, they, they say offhandedly, let's start the machinery and then realize exactly how how mechanical all of it is. Um, yeah. it, it, it is very good because you see you see this supernatural end and what is potentially an incubating supernatural being put up against, like, modern uh, modern corpse disposal not technology, but just, uh, 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 details and procedure. Right. Mm-hmm. It's good. Um, they deal with Mike Ryerson's arrangements. They get him sent away. Uh, they manage to shake the heat just a little bit. We should talk a little bit about the, uh, about the, 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 the sheriff or the constable whose name I forget, but he is definitely the most useless piece of shit in literature. Oh my God. <laughs> at the very end which i know we're not there yet but just like i'm out there's an assault rifle uh in the cabinet over there yeah. i'm um abandoning my post gonna go live with my sister yep all i uh, all i managed to do over the course of this entire story where people are dropping like flies in my town in my town of 1319 all i've managed to do was dig up some details about your past ben mears he, mr author he, man he, he didn't even seem as stressed as you would think he would be about a missing boy in a town of like 1300 some odd people. He's just like, well, I got to check on the outsiders. <laughs> yeah, I got it. Exactly. I, I, I talked to you and I talked to Straker. I don't know what else we can do to find this boy. <laughs> I talked to two guys. Leave it up to the FBI. Maybe you guys should call the cops. <laughs> what, are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah i i I just uh every time this guy came up i was like oh this piece of work come on yeah yeah (laughs) um but they make the deal uh with uh with mike ryerson's range but but like but the next thing he is back in matt's in in matt's house he's floating above his bed and there's this whole like altercation you know they they have managed to put together crosses they ultimately managed to fend him away but in the process matt has a heart attack so this book is very rich in heart attacks yeah yeah mostly aimed at matt mostly aimed at poor poor matt (laughs) Uh, that academic's life caught up to him um (laughs) yeah and this gets dr james cody involved uh I, i i love how they do the whole like pan away while the explanation of what happened up to this point happens I I love the 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 doctor. Didn't he make a cross out of tongue depressors? Like, it, yes, what he a did. Renaissance man. <laughs> yeah, it's just like catch as catch can, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, J- Cody is a little bit more a little bit more skeptical, uh, but he is definitely more in the line of like, all right, well let's let let's see what happens. Um, you definitely like I can get you in there under the pretense of like examining him for a particular kind of encephalopathy. But uh, you cannot stake his body in the morgue. Like, uh, we would definitely go to jail. 
Yeah. So, again, very funny. James Cody exists just to die. But uh, he's so he's so impactful. I almost like him as much as I mean he did, he he's just a good guy. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> another another good boy has been added yeah. to the. Now it's a. What, there's a duo, then there's a trio. What do you call it when it, it's just a foursome, right? Uh, a, a foursome, a, a tetrad. <laughs> A quartet. We got a, qu- a good boy yeah. quartet. I, I think it's a tetrad. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, they, they, this whole section too. They, Stephen King does such a good job when you know they're finding this stuff out, and we're seeing the evil kind of slowly creep through the town. All those small little stories, the ones you know, who's having an affair with whom, who's abusing their child, who's doing this and that. It. it when he talks about the town as a, oh God, I'm pulling the Sex and the City thing. New York is a character, but when he talks about the the town as a character, basically, mm-hmm. and just how this evil is creeping into it, I think it's it's some beautiful writing. Oh yeah, and just like the the, the way that it almost existed specifically to let this to let this spread, mm-hmm. um, you know, to, to to let it spread behind behind the drawn shades, right? It it it's like one long. Bruce Springsteen song, you know, <laughs> yep. about things just not going great in this small town. Oh you my know? gosh, just the, the, <laughs> that 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 cheating couple story—that's uh, brutal. I didn't, I didn't care yeah. for that one bit. Yeah, it reminded me a little bit of um, that section in the stand where there's the progression of of accidental deaths. Oh yeah. After the 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 big thing, it kind of reminded me of that—just these little snapshots that you see of little lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, you, you you could definitely tell like that he is luxuriating in that, mm-hmm. right? He just uh, wants the opportunity to describe these these little failings, right? These little scenes of just people uh, people not not really at their best, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's let, let's see here. Like during this time, like like you said, you know, Danny Glick is spreading his vampirism. Uh, this is where, like, like the one of those little short stories that you that you alluded to really stuck out to me. The um, the the, the death of Randy McDougall, who never had a chance. Like, th- it was it was a bit of a minor recurring plot beat. Like Randy and his mom, like his mom, who was like seventeen years old, she got married. It was like a shotgun wedding, and they're living in a trailer, and it's not really, you know, it, well, it wasn't really worked. Uh, it wasn't really working out too much for them, but like. She ends up beating her infant son, which is too bad. It it's amazing how uh, it, Stephen King does such a good job on drawing you in on this that you're more fascinated than. And I I, I know that's an odd thing to say about something that's that's really horrifying, but like he creates this level of empathy. Like it's not something you would ever do, but it, this you have this moment of empathy. Like you can picture this character that's so frustrated and disappointed, and this and that that she's lashing out. I mean, it's it's just good writing. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is like it, it's understanding without without reaching sympathy. That like, oh, this is this is a mom that is completely not ready for what she for 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 yeah. what she is uh, for, for 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 what she is faced with. Right, but he just makes it so real and so plausible. While, like you said, not there's not an ounce of sim- sympathy. I mean, she's, yeah. oof, 
Poor yeah. Randy. Oh yeah. Well, she so so she initially you know hits him because he he knocks something off the the changing table or just so, something really trivial. But just the the scene where Randy dies, where Randy kind of is given over to the to the vampire curse, is so is so tragic because she cannot accept. And she feels so guilty for the way that she that she treated Randy that like mm-hmm. she starts like feeding him his favorite like chocolate pudding or chocolate custard mm-hmm. and pretending like hey you're you're alive you're enjoying this it's your best chalky chalky right um, and then when the when the when the pudding falls out of his mouth because you know he's he's gone she completely she completely loses it like that is it's an evocative scene yeah i I like it like i kind of recoiled from that a little bit like that that is that is straight up i I don't know if there's a word for the type of horror that stephen king's king does like this like it's Mm -hmm. just character horror i mean it's just i guess horror is the human condition i guess yeah Uh, it's not yeah Uh, i mean i was about to say it's no good like it's good it is very well done but like it it, it rises to be one of the things about this book that sticks out to me the most you know, in a book that has a lot of explicitly horrific things that happen. Oh, I, th- I think I remember that and feel more uncomfortable with that than I do any of the, the staking, stabbings, bleedings, um, sexual interactions, anything like that. I, that. That's definitely one of those. It's it's an eye worm, I guess. Yes. <laughs> eye worm is a good. Uh, <laughs> or brain worm. Yeah. I guess my eyes got the words into my brain. Yeah. <laughs> well, your, your eyes were the conduit for the worm. <laughs> They were there it's for a, a moment. Lot, there's a lot of worms, okay? That's yeah, all I'm saying. So many worms. <laughs> um, but yeah, Matt is in the hospital. He's you know he's 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 bedridden, um, but he starts acting as the Van Helsing. He's doing research for them, uh, kind of amassing all of these books about the occult, and they decide to get Father Callahan involved because they go for the Catholic Church, the one with the most uh, the one with the most uh, k- k- kind of a uh, hoodoo behind it, right? Yeah, there's there's definitely a deep thread of uh, Catholic mysticism in some things. My uh, one of the ladies that I ride horses with, um, I live in Louisiana, and it's a pretty Catholic area. But there's definitely like her Facebook posts and stuff. There's a lot of, you know, actively believing in witches, demons that hurt people's marriage. Like there's there's definitely a, a wellspring of Catholic mysticism that it seems like father callahan's a little bit more maybe tapped into than an ordinary priest would be yes i would like specifically callahan is really disillusioned with the movement of the church toward more social consciousness as opposed you know fighting social ills as opposed to the greater you know cosmic evil ills that Mm -hmm. he that, that he maybe i think signed up to you know to get on board with and that's that like that's a little bit of a dissonance for 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 me because like I think like oh man for in in my mind as a as a person who has no stake in this because I'm not religious <laughs> like oh like I'm I'm good with the church like trying to like address racial inequality and poverty and stuff like that and it's hard for me to get on board with Callahan who <laughs> specifically drinks because all of his all of his colleagues care about those poor people and he wants to get out there and fight the devil. Yeah, he's like I'm into that witchy shit. Yeah, he's into that witchy shit, but he's also like, like, like a borderline sociopath at points. Like, you know, just uh, well, we we don't we don't need like more more bake sales. We need uh, we we need more people out there with guns being willing to do what they need to do. We need more we need more abortions to, you know, to, to clear people out. Just like he is definitely like on some weird Old Testament shit that. I, like I don't know, like with with my with my current sensibility, it's hard for it to be. It's hard for it to make him like uh, like a sympathetic character. I ultimately, like 
Callahan because he goes he goes through enough and comes out the other side being being functional enough but like that whole part of it it's really hard to square away with like a modern conception of like the role of clergy and the community it it's amazing to me how checked out callahan is for the entire book i mean it moments when he should be comforting people or when he like he's looking at ben and matt with this this distance and he's more going through the kubler ross model of you know, the stages of grief and his are, you know, like, oh, they're in shock, they're this and they're that. Mm-hmm. And then he offers, as opposed to offering them any form of comfort or relating to them in an emotional or sympathetic way whatsoever. Yeah. It's, um, <laughs> it's quite frankly a little bit, a little bit hard to square, but like that ultimately I think becomes his, becomes his failing, right? Because even though he, he professes to desire kind of a more primal kind of faith, he, he, he completely lacks it. And let's just say that even though there's a fifth guy in the frame, this is not a quintet. No, no, he's, 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 he's definitely not all there. Yeah. He's not in the good boys club. No, he's, 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 he's not in the good boys club. Like there, there's the good boys club. And then there's like the, uh, like the, the auxiliary that comes up behind and it is just, uh, it is just Callahan saying, man, the thing that got rid of the, the, the thing that got rid of evil wasn't, wasn't the church. It was electric lights and it was Freud. Like, what are you talking about, man? The, it's interesting that the two people in the book who should be, taking on these roles the sheriff and Cal- the the priest mm-hmm. are the two most checked out like least helpful people in the book yeah they're they're, they're they're just completely going through the motions yeah yeah um but he's brought on board mostly to kind of arm them like i i picture him rolling up as like the like the arms dealer in the tarantino movie like <laughs> oh i've got some good shit for you Opens yeah. up the trunk of the car and like, okay, here's some crosses. Here's some, here's some I, garlic. I, I can make as much holy water as I want. I'm a priest. <laughs> yep. They, 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 they don't keep track of it. <laughs> <laughs> <So>. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> so it's, uh, 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 so somewhere around this point, Ben gets taken out of the picture or hospitalized. Uh, because a jilted Floyd has been uh, has had poison poured in his ear by Barlow to go take Ben uh Ben off of the off of the board, right? I I love the little detail that when when Floyd, you know, Susan's ex boyfriend comes to beat up Ben, he's wearing Playtex um dishwashing gloves mm-hmm. and like an overcoat and a hat and sunglasses. Like the idea of like coming out to brawl while wearing your yellow ladies dishwashing gloves because it was in the seventies, so you know they only came in ladies sizes. Oh, of course. <laughs> you know like yeah like, like he, he was he was like dressed to hide himself from the sun i'm not sure like i don't think he was turned at that point but he like, was just he had the vampire hang around you know yeah. the hangover oh yeah yeah he, he definitely was he definitely was doing that but like i love the idea of him putting on the gloves um almost like as a as like a like a berenstain bears first hitman adventure kind of thing <laughs> like i gotta hide my prince yes. yeah <laughs> Yeah, but Floyd Tibbetts comes in and he is ultimately taken in by the cops because that's one thing they know how to deal with uh, is, you know, drunk and disorderly. Um, But Ben and Susan, they have their final, their their first and final sweet consummation. Uh, But with Matt and Ben hospitalized, it is up to Susan and Mark to go to the Marston house during the day to kind of feel things out, you know, hoping to, you know, to to, to catch Barlow uh, and and stake him. 
I had read this book before and I still got surprised um, the when because Susan's has gone to the house by herself. She's spying on it. Mm-hmm. And then she hears a noise behind her and feels a hand. And I was like, oh, no, Straker got her. Like it totally tricked me, even though uh, technically this is my third time reading the book. Yeah, it got me. <laughs> oh, I, I have this. I have this wrong because Susan goes to uh, to scout things out, and it's Mark who's gone to do the same thing, right? Yeah, and they run into each other, and Mark's like, "Hey, I know you," and she's like, "Ah." I mean, <laughs> he's lucky he didn't get staked with that little fence picket that she had with her. Yeah, and he's like, "Oh no, I I, my, I use my dad's wood shop to make an ash wood. I, I used his lathe to make an ash wood stake out of a <laughs> out of a baseball bat." I'm like, okay, <laughs> you little overachieving nerd. <laughs> yeah, well, is this an episode of This Old House? Come on, bro. <laughs> That'd be fine if it was an episode of This Old House. But they, they, they team up and they go in together and then, whoo, stuff goes off the rails. Yes, it does. Um, kind of unceremoniously. I should have seen this coming because Susan is definitely the Lucy Westenra figure in this. You know, mm-hmm. like she, she she exists to, to be taken out for, uh, the, for, for James Harker to, you know, go and deal with. But yeah, yeah. they're like, they're, they're both captured. Um, Susan is not so lucky as to have read a book about Houdini. She has taken and turned. Um Mark, however, has read a book about Houdini, so he does his escape artist trick as Strayer is tying him up. Like he he uh, flexes all of his muscles so that you know he's he's bigger when he's wrapped up, so the rope will be slacker. He makes himself real sweaty by thinking real sweaty thoughts, uh, so he can get out of the bonds. It's actually a pretty cool scene. I don't know why it, I'm dunking on Mark so much. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it is a it is a pretty cool scene. I I think that um, it, it's very cool that Mark's able to. To, to use this Houdini stuff and get out of his bonds. I, I get really bummed about Susan. I mean, the, the whole book, she's trying to get out from her mother's thumb. Floyd Tibbetts isn't right. She's trying to get out from under his thumb. She has this nice moment with Ben where they, they make love. She initiates it. So mm-hmm. she's kind of in the driver's seat and control of the whole thing. And I think the line that Mark uses after she's turned is about, um, about barlow and he says she's his now so she just ends up owned at the end of the book and it's 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 a real bummer it sucks yeah i I would i would like for i would have liked to have uh had her have a chance to subvert that you know yeah to to to, to be a little bit of her own person uh even up through the end but that was that was not the plan Mm -hmm. yeah sucks feel bad for susan i feel bad for Feel, feel bad for her mostly, Ben as well, for having to put her down. Everybody but Dud. Dud's having a good old week. Oh, yeah. Dud's out there partying. Because <laughs> <laughs> once you're a vampire, nobody cares what you look like. It's yeah. dark outside. Yeah, it's all blood from here. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Mark gets another master, <laughs> master stroke turn. He caves Straker's head in with a cot leg. Um, you know, t- t- taking him out, but then he has to run away to save himself. Like Susan's already gone. Like he's mm-hmm. the year of the process. Um, Barlow, um, instead of like taking Straker in and, you know, getting him, <laughs> getting him cured and nursing him back to health, basically figured, oh, you're useless to me now. So let me, let me hang you upside down and let all the blood out of you because blah, blah, blah. But then also let me get, get really upset at these meddling kids because they made, they made me have to kill my, my best friend and most loyal servant. Okay. You know, this is just a good object lesson because I could see a scenario where I would 
say to myself, you know, I'm kind of friends with this vampire. Maybe if I just became his familiar, he would turn me into a vampire. Yeah. It, it never works. No. It never, it never works. And I just need to remember that because maybe the temptation of eternal life, super strength, creepy fangs would yeah. just win me over. But they're never going to turn me. They're just going to make me like... Well, like in what we do in the shadows, pick up their dry cleaning. <laughs> yep. That's <laughs> uh, it's, it's how I feel whenever I look at a casino. I'm like, okay, yeah, that, that might be fun. But then I realize, oh, the house always wins. Well, but I'm just going to walk away. The vampire always wins. The house always wins. <laughs> but maybe this time it could be different for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I don't think that applies to us. <laughs> yeah, this takes us to part three, the deserted village. Where our final check-in on Salem's Lot is that it is dead and nobody knows it. I love mm-hmm. that. I, I I love all these details about just like during the day, tourists will pass through and think, oh, this is like any other town. But man, um, at several points through the book, like King reuses the same cliche, like, oh, they rolled the they they rolled the sidewalks up, like they're mm-hmm. there there are just no people out. Um, but yeah, like you know, the people who are not turned. Um, the people who are able to go out during the day really don't. They just kind of stay indoors, even if they don't know exactly what's going on. They're like, oh, let me get that cross out a little bit. Uh, maybe find, let, let me find that St. Christopher medal. Uh, mm-hmm. Things like that. Like it is, it is, it is really bad news for Salem's lot. And we get a lot of uh, kind of uh, um, loose ends tied. Specifically, my favorite one is with the, um, with the bus driver. Remember the scene? Like, I, I forget the bus driver's name, but uh, Reggie. Oh, but yeah, with, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was so mad at the all those kids on the bus cutting up. <laughs> yep, all those kids on the bus cutting up, and they were out there. You know, like made them get out and walk the rest of the way to school. And you can explain why you were late, Tibbets. I guess Tibbets <laughs> had a son. He didn't really talk about it, but uh, no, you can explain why you're late. And then just all of a sudden, he goes out to start his. He goes out to start his shift, and he is just immediately just uh, uh, completely drained of all his blood by the vampire <laughs> kids who want their revenge. Yeah, it's very good. It's- it's interesting that the vampires do like while being just uh, they're so animalistic, but mm-hmm. also they do retain a little bit of cunning. Yeah, and ties. Yeah, to and their a, to their old lives and a good sense of irony. Oh yeah, <laughs> they they love a goof. Yep, they they they, they want to make sure that whoever they kill it's appropriate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as, as long as somebody learns a life lesson it just makes the blood taste that much sweeter yes it does <laughs> taste that that's the realization <laughs> oh so <sighs> so we've got it so we've got our little quartet yes we do oh we uh, just lost susan unfortunately yes we did our dwindling dwindling quartet mark goes to see ben saying like hey i'm a small child you don't know also your girlfriend is dead um it's more sensitive than that. Like, hey, she's turned. We need to deal with this. The the, the news wrecks Ben. Uh, meanwhile, Matt dies of heart failure in the hospital, really just leaving the cotet as, you know, Ben, uh, Dr. Cody, Callahan, and Mark. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, we're in, the, we're in the end game here as they lead this expedition into the Marston house to find Barlow and Susan. Mm-hmm. But they only find Susan. Oh, poor Susan. <sighs> poor Susan. Like it, it, it sucks. Like there's nothing left of her when Ben goes to do this, mm-hmm. and you know it takes several tries. Like it's not a clean kill. It, it was interesting the way that they, the language that they used to say that he had to make her his wife 
that he had to he had to be the one to do it because of their relationship. I thought that was all like everyone just seemed to have this innate knowledge. Like it really is ka in, in effect. Everyone's like, "Yep, this is the way it has to." I mean, it really is a greased rail situation. Yeah, you know, like like it does. It just has to be this way. And even if you're not ready for it, you know, maybe you can come out the other side of this ready for what you have to do next. Mm-hmm. Right. So. Susan is down. Unfortunately, she's not able to, it's not a day Walker situation where she, she's able to help them out. Nope. Just full, full on Lucy with Stenra. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but they, uh, so, so Ben stakes her, the others perform rights on the body. You know, they bury, they, they bury her, uh, they, they throw her coffin, her weighted coffin into a, into a river. Her head is on backward in the coffin stuffed with garlic, all the usual kind of stuff, that nasty business. It would have been nice if um, you know, some roses had been available for sale. Yeah. <laughs> would have made everybody feel better if they could have just made her a flower crown. It's it, it's quite funny because they because they go out um out, first obviously, yes, a flower crown. I would take one of those right now in a heartbeat. Maybe not roses, <laughs> that would be a little bit painful. Um <laughs> <laughs> but they, so the all of the all of the roses are taken care of they can still get garlic because try and try and get rid of all the garlic it's it's everywhere mm-hmm. i will say though that during the time i was reading this book i definitely started cooking with a lot more garlic <laughs> hey you it never just, know it just I, well, you never know but also it reminded me how good garlic is <laughs> um barlow left a taunting note for ben um but uh uh, oh gosh, Mark and the others kind of say like, "Hey, no matter how and no matter how angry you are, like Barlow's on the run. Like, yeah. imagine how safe he feels. Imagine how comfortable he feels. We have, you know, like Callahan has sealed his house off with a wafer. We have doused it with holy water. There is no way that he can come back. Right? Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a really like what a jerk letter it is. Yeah, it's. I mean, a, it's a it's a long letter just saying how much smarter I am than you. You know. Yeah, it's like do do do, do you think do you think that you're the first to come at me in my many centuries of life? You know, I was I, I was old when Christianity was young. All this kind of stuff. Barlow's a little bit of a shit. Like it makes sense that it, it makes sense how he survived this long. You know, because of his just kind of immense power. But like just the amount of people that he's pissed off and the degree to which he, to which he has pissed them off just kind of makes it seem like he wouldn't be that survivable. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, um, but father Callahan and Mark decide brilliantly to split up. They go over to Mark's house to get his parents out of town because in this note, Barlow had specifically threatened Mark's, uh, Mark's parents. Because mm-hmm. Mark had, uh, you know, gotten away, had led, you know, had killed Strayer in his in his eyes, even though Barlow was the one who held the rope. While they're arguing about how implausible all of this is, um, I love uh, Mark's dad. Uh, I, so, sorry, I, I, I took I took a left turn in that. How how great is Mark's dad? Oh, he is just like, well, uh, this is not plausible. Uh, yeah, I'm I, a high-powered corporate accountant or whatever. I, I, and, I, I'm um, an insurance adjuster, and I've run the <laughs> tables on this in my head while we were talking. And, uh... Yeah. <laughs> he, he, realistically, he's the only person in the book that has reacted sensibly to what people are telling him so far. I mean, <laughs> yes, yeah, it's like... like okay. It's just like, if, uh, Cole, like... Uh, I really like you. I have so much respect for you. I, I, I think you're brilliant. But if you were like Autumn... 
at the end of the podcast, like, I think vampires might be real. I'd be like, okay, cool. Well, it's been a pleasure podcasting well, with you. Click. Like, cool. I mean, I wouldn't be like, well, maybe we should get some crosses, Cole. Yeah. Well, <laughs> let's just, let's just, you know, round up a posse and go around and get some yeah. of them, get some I'd, of them I'd, Nightwalkers, I'd you know? I'd my iPhone over and I'd text Jeremy and I'd be like, Cole was saying some yeah, crazy we, we, shit we, right we, now. We need to cut some ties. I think that he's really at the end of his rope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it it is very funny because like he he is very much thinking about like oh so like you've been going around like throwing bodies in rivers and staking them you've involved my son in a crime you 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 know that we can't do this right it is a little bit weird as a modern reader how often um, Mark Petrie is just rolling around with strange dudes and priests and stuff I mean it it was a more innocent time wasn't it oh yeah just free free, free range kids right. Yeah, like, I mean, he just keeps getting dropped off at the house by a different grown-ass man yeah. <laughs> that, that they've never seen before. Like, disrespected pillars of the community and outsiders and shady drifters. Yeah, <laughs> Mark's exactly. got a good head on his shoulders. He's fine. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, Callie and Mark are there, and they're trying to say, like, hey, maybe you should just 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 go, go, go rent a Hampton Inn for a while. They just maybe let the heat die down. But then Barlow simultaneously breaks all the windows in the house, um, rushes in through one of them, and kills Mark's parents by crushing their heads together with immense force. <sighs> yeah. Pretty brutal. Um, and on top of that, he decides to hold Mark captive. Mark oh, this being, is, this being, is a good moment. I love this. This whole scene is so good. Um, Mark, being a badass, he decides to spit on Barlow. And Barlow is having none of it. He is so insulted. You spit on me. When was the last time you think he got spit on? If he says 1,500 years old. Like, when was the last time he got spit on? I have no idea. I've been spent a while, like centuries. Oh, it, it, absolutely. The, the people that have the gall to do that? Yeah. Somebody as imposing as Barlow? As Kurt yeah. Barlow? It's just like when Vampire Lestat says, you fed me dead blood. Like, <laughs> how the, dare the, you? the nerve. The nerve. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Callahan steps forward, you know, to confront Barlow, you know, and drive him off, you know, to, to make Mark safe. And Barlow says, hey, you know, all I want is a fair fight. I'll give you Mark as long as you throw your cross to the side. Right? Mm-hmm. No big deal. Which is just you and me, battle of wits, battle of faith. And Callahan says, yeah, okay, let's do that. But he holds onto the cross just a little bit too long. Mm-hmm. And as he holds onto it, he sees the power drain out of it. And that's ultimately like the, like the, the main flaw of Callahan in this book is that he ultimately came to believe more fully in the trappings of the faith than the faith itself. It was the mm-hmm. belief in the symbols that gave them power and so Barlow is able to come up and, you know, snap the arms off of the cross while Callahan is stunned and Barlow forces Callahan to drink his blood. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the best slaying in the book. I think, I think absolutely. Like, I mean, Callahan is, is just ruined. Yeah. Like, you know, he, he's, he's not turned. He is not made in service. He is made unclean. Like, it, it, it is not just, <laughs> he, he is made to continue living with his own mind, you know, like with, just as, as himself, but completely not to separate it from his profession and his, you know, ostensible calling. You know, he's not able to go into the church, like his hand burns as he touches the handle to go inside. But like, nobody wants to be around him. When he goes to buy the ticket, 
like the woman who sells it to him says, you're going to need to wait outside. Like, and, and his mouth tastes gross. So it, even his old favorite thing, which was drinking, can't help him now. I mean, he's yeah. just, his mouth tastes gross. Yeah, it's not going to stop him from trying, though. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah. he's, in, in this one in one aspect, he does have a lot of heart. Yeah, no, he's he's, he's definitely, uh, he's, he's got a lot of try in him. Yeah. Um, as he buys a ticket to NYC and he pays $30 for a pint of cheap booze just to try and, you know, wash the taste of rot out of his mouth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, sucks. Like, no, no matter how many misgivings I have about Callahan as he was represented here, like, that has to be a face worse than death. Like, you know, it is taking just regular run-of-the-mill excommunication and amplifying it times a thousand and making it that he is just cast out of human society in it's, general. And it's almost worse that no one like sees his sh shame and they all just think that he gave up his life honorably to Barlow and was defeated like the rest yeah. of the, the, the content. Yeah. They're just like, Oh, well Callahan, he just, he just gone. Like he must've been turned like everybody else is. We, we've got, we've got more pressing things to worry about than the, than the, than the dad. You know, one, one thing that I thought was interesting, um, this was a little bit before Callahan, when they were arming themselves to go over there, um, and Ben ended up with the, that hammer. Um, <laughs> we we also saw that in Desperation with Johnny, like, which is the other one that is a treatise on religion. I mean, they end up armed with these, uh, Ben and Johnny both end up armed with these these hammers that mm -hmm. are have almost a supernatural religious power to them. Yeah. Yeah, I I didn't draw that connection, but that is that, that is very well observed. You know, I love a good hammering. You know, <laughs> yeah. I always got my eyes out for hammers. Yeah, it'd be, be useful. Guess what? You <laughs> come up on a door, you get to pry that. It is very funny how a padlock very nearly uh, uh, thwarts their progress at the end of this. Let's get a hammer, pry that thing out, man. You know, it probably would have been a little bit easier if um, the padlock had thwarted their progress for for Jimmy, at least. Uh, probably, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, let's let, 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 let's let's go through the end here because it is uh, we we are within uh, with it within spitting distance of it. Mm -hmm. um, so Callahan's out of the picture. You know, now it's down to three. It is it, it is just Mark. It is just uh, it, you know just Ben and and Cody. Um, Mark has a vague recollection. He has seen blue chalk on Barlow's clothes and they basically triangulate this trying to figure out, okay, well, what would have blue chalk? Maybe it'd be the science class. No, it wouldn't be the science class. Maybe it's the elementary. So they're operating on this lead. Hey, maybe we should go to the elementary school. Mm -hmm. Um, but then Ben remembers that, Hey, there's a, there's a pool table, um, in the boarding house basement. Barlow's down there now. Like that's where mm -hmm. he's, where he's hiding out basically beneath where the leader of his hunting troop is, uh, is, is shacking up. Right. Mm -hmm. The initial, the initial stab to go there. Um, and that was a very unfortunate choice of words, uh, is thwarted when Jimmy Cody dies to a booby trap set of stairs, basically right in front of Mark in front of this 12 year old boy. <laughs> oh yeah. They're about to walk downstairs to the basement and yeah. the vampires have sawed off the steps. So it looks like the steps are there. There's just two steps and then down into darkness. And, yeah. uh, they've also removed all of the knives in the house and wedged them up with plywood. So you'll just fall right into a whole mess of knives. Yeah. And the, the, the crappy thing, well, it, it sucks that, that that uh that cody's dead but also it sucks that mark blames himself because he noticed that that, that all the knives were gone 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm also stopping and thinking, how many knives are in this home? <laughs> I know how many knives I have. It's a it's a good number of knives because I don't like washing dishes, but. <laughs> I, I I even like cook a lot and have a lot of knives, but I mean, I, I think I think I have a survivable amount of knives, depending on how you fell on them. I oh. mean, you know. Okay, so if you decided, hey Cole, he's got all these crazy ideas about vampires. He's got to he's got to go. Let's throw him in, onto all the knives that he that he owns. I might be able to walk away from that. <laughs> yeah, you know, like maybe you'd puncture a lung, yeah. but modern medicine could fix you. Yes. Yeah, modern non-1975 medicine. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, so so Cody, he's gone, and Mark blames himself for it. The The initial draft of this was apparently so bad, so horrific, that the, the publisher made King change it. Originally, it was going to be uh, Dud uh, sicking the army of rats on Cody and having Whoa. the swarm of rats eat him alive. Oh, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so... Who knows which of those would have been better, but I'm happy. I'm happy knowing both were possibilities. Yeah. That and it's nice that Jimmy wasn't turned. True. He was saved that indignity. Yeah. So Ben and Mark are the only two left. They make their final confrontation with Barlow as the sun is going down. Uh, they're, they're nearly thwarted by the padlock, but they manage to get through. And I love the scene where Ben's like basically yelling at Mark. Like he's giving him the full Friday Night Lights, like clear eyes, full hearts. Like just like, <laughs> we have to go down there. We have to suck it up. Like we, he just does the whole like sports speech. Yeah. Why are you yelling at me when you're just yelling at yourself, old man? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and I want to say this monologue just because it's here. It's badass. And it is a major part of this book. You know, they, 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 they uncover Barlow's body, and as he is rising from his torpor, he wants to dress Ben down. He says, look and see me, puny man. Look upon Barlow, who has passed the centuries as you have passed hours before a fireplace with a book. Look and see the great creature of the night whom you would slay with your miserable little stick. Look upon me, scribbler. I have written in, I have written in human lives, and blood has been my ink. Look at me and despair. Whew. So, so good. Yeah. <laughs> and Ben's like, oh, yeah, nah. <laughs> I was kind of surprised at how easy the staking went. Yeah. I was I was just a little surprised. Like, Ben just jumps right up on that dude, just gets his stake on. Yeah. Like, at probably literally the last moment that he could have done this. Yeah. You know? I'm, it's a shame Mark didn't just get one more spitting in. Yeah. Well, you know, who knows what they did when they when they were disposing of the teeth. <laughs> yeah I, when they were when they were loading up on holy water i was like guys guys haven't you seen like this in like film and television drink the holy water immediately it'll be circulating in your bloodstream yeah well it's 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 very fortunate that they were able to uh that they anointed themselves because that's the only mm -hmm. way they were able to walk away like mm -hmm. they, they, they bathed themselves in it um very cool little like a uh, visual beat that that like when they walked into this space around barlow and all of the uh uh the borders who had turned into vampires um and just that the holy water caused them to glow with kind of mm -hmm. an eldritch fairy light good stuff um mm -hmm. but yeah ben finishes the staking and we get this awesome description of barlow kind of like rotting backward through time you know first aging and then you know, ultimately just kind of desiccating and his skeleton going away until all that is left is his teeth. 
and <sighs> they're able to weigh, you know, they're able to walk away from the vampires who, you know, for the first time are showing something besides instinct and mourning the loss of their leader. You know, mm-hmm. they're, they're anointed in holy water. None of them could take revenge. You know, they give proper burials to Jimmy and to Mark's parents and they get rid of the teeth and they flee town. And, then, and that's where we find him at the beginning, back in, back in Los, <laughs> Los Zapatos in Mexico. Yep, back in the shoes. All God's chillins are in the shoes um, <laughs> as they decide, hey, it's time for us to go back, finish things off, you know, so nobody can drive through and, you know, get one for the roaded. Um, as Mark and Ben go back there and decide, hey, a brush fire nearly took the town out before. Uh, why don't we set a fire and see what happens? Mm-hmm. And... It is not good enough. And you, dear listener, as you are driving, you know, from wherever you live to wherever you're going, and you pass by one of those towns that seems a little hostile, a little shut away, maybe, you know, not as active or a little bit dead, and it's definitely a common sight in the American countryside nowadays. Who knows what is hiding behind those picket fences? <laughs> no, but that's uh, that's Salem's lot. Ah. Oh. <laughs> what a what a fun romp that was yeah it's like it, it is it is very good um i was i was kind of surprised because you always have that bit of trepidation right going into a book that is so built up as being you know like a like a like a major work like this is the you know the modern day retelling of dracula they're all they're all kinds of ways that could go wrong um i don't think every single note this hits is you know the the best uh but that's a weird standard to hold it up to for an author's second book Hedging, mm-hmm. hedging, hedging. I had a very good time with this. Um, excellent imagery, excellent ideas, and just a really, really awesome portrait of a fucked up small town. I'm a big needful things person. Like I, I, I love that book, and it's it's interesting that some of the beats are the same, but you don't even associate them with each other. Like right. the characters and everything are so well drawn and realized that even though, I mean, my God, we literally are talking about an evil that comes to town to sell antiques. They literally <laughs> set up an antique store, yeah. but it feels completely different than needful things despite that. Mm-hmm. Different kinds of evil. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's room for all of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I, I can't wait to, I can't wait to meet or to see father Callahan again in the next books. Yeah. I am. I'm very much looking forward to, uh, so my next read through and my next listen through, which I do for these, uh, you know, when we get ready for the show, this will be the first time where I really know, um, more about his backstory than is described in Wolves of the Cala. Um, so I'm very much, uh, just, uh, really going to relish, uh, looking at those events through, you know, through, through a new lens with more information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So thank you so much, Autumn, for coming on and talking about this. Did you have any final thoughts about Salem's Lot? Oh, no. Just um, everybody, if you're you're listening along, it's definitely worth a read, even if this is one that you decide to skip past to get back to the to yeah. the tower meet. Um, <laughs> yeah, def- definitely give this one a read. It's worth it. I'll probably wait another year or so, and then I'll probably read it again. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of detail that we skipped over. Uh, a lot mm-hmm. of incidental characters off to the side. Um, small little details about uh, kind of the family lives of individual characters uh, that just wouldn't bear talking about in detail on the show. Um, I would definitely say, even if you did listen to this for a summary to understand where Callahan came from, Salem's Lot is definitely worth worth a read. It goes by very quickly. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, Autumn, where can people find you on the internet? 
Well, you can find me on Twitter at, at Mrs. Greer. That's at M-I-S-S-U-S Greer. Uh, you can also find me on the Duck Feed Slack and the Radio Free Midworld channel. Yeah. Um, and they'll also find you next episode talking about the regulators. That is absolutely correct. Yeah. The alternate you the alternate universe version of uh, Desperation. I'm excited because I understand that that book is just just buck wild. Um, <laughs> bizarro Desperation. Yeah. So and Desperation was already pretty bizarro. Um, <laughs> you know where you can find me uh, on other DuckFeed.tv shows at Cole Ross on Twitter and uh, Twitch.tv slash DuckFeedTV. If you don't want if you want to watch me play uh, horror themed video games. Um, thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time. Until then, though, long days and pleasant nights. Welcome to Radio Free Midworld, a podcast about the Dark Tower series of books by Stephen King and, you know, related works. We're here today to talk about, Jer <laughs> nope, not Jerusalem's Lot, about Salem's Lot. I'm going to retake that. God, I was hoping you were about to say Jurassic Park, and I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> Curveball. <laughs>